0: Well, turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 8. Revelation 2, 8 through 11, we will be reading in the English Standard Version. That is the version that you'll find in your pews there, the Black Bible. Revelation 2, 8 through 11, and as you are able, friends, would you now stand for the reading of God's Word? And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You may be seated. Well, as we can see, friends, this is a relatively short passage, just four verses, uh, and it differs quite significantly from the passage we looked at last week, the letter to the church in Ephesus 2, verses 1 through 7. That passage featured weighty rebuke that was based on a particular weakness in the Ephesian church, and in this passage, there is no such criticism but rather it describes the trials faced by the church of ancient Smyrna. The criticism that we do see is not leveled against them, but against those who are persecuting them on account of their faith. And what's so exciting, at least exciting to me, is that there are three texts from the early to mid-second century which bear stunning witness to the church of ancient Smyrna. Now, such documents are not inspired like Scripture is, but they illuminate what we read in Revelation by giving us a glimpse into the life and thought of Christians in the first generation following the apostles. So, this morning we're going to study Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11, in their original context, verse by verse. And then we're going to look at this text's reception, you could say, in the letters of Ignatius and the martyrdom of Polycarp. So that is our plan for this morning, but before we go any further, let us pray. Jesus, we love you, but you love us more. Help us to feel that love this morning. Help us to feel it like we've never felt it before, Jesus. I pray that you'd soften our hearts so that we may understand exactly what the Spirit is saying to us today through these words. Help us to identify with the church in Smyrna, to identify with folks like Ignatius and Polycarp, to identify with you, Jesus. So be glorified this morning, please, and make us more like you through this time. It's in your precious heavenly name that we pray. Amen. So we're going to jump right in at verse 8 here, Revelation 2. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. Now this is formulaic. You, you, you'll read this in the first line of each of the seven letters. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, and so forth. Uh, and we have talked about this word angelos in Greek, which doesn't necessarily mean a spiritual being, an angel, but could very well mean a human representative. So, to the leader of the church or churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, etc., the pastor, bishop, that sort of thing. So, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right, colon, and then we get the same sort of thing that we got in verse 1, the words of, but in the first letter, we have the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So, reaching back into John's vision in chapter one. But here in verse eight, it reaches back into a different aspect of John's vision the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So, that takes us to chapter one, verse 17. And you can turn there, if you'd like, describing John's initial vision. And he sees the Son of Man, or one like the Son of Man. In verse 17, he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. The Son of Man from Daniel, connected with imagery about the Ancient of Days in the Old Testament, is clearly identified with Jesus, the one who died, but who was raised from the dead. And so in the letter to the church at Smyrna, these details about death and resurrection and eternal life after resurrection are somehow relevant to this community, and we'll see how in just a minute. After this, we get another formulaic phrase in verse 9, I know. In verse 2, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. Those were the positive comments Jesus made before the negative one. And you'll see this phrase uh, in some of the other letters, but here, I know your tribulation. And that should remind you of those three things that Christians share in common, the tribulation, the endurance, and the kingdom from chapter 1. So I know your tribulation, that is the present difficulty that you are facing. And remember that Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, is walking amidst the lampstands, and these lampstands are said to represent these churches, which means, friends, that Jesus Christ is walking in the midst of our pews right now. He knows exactly what we are dealing with. And he can speak that perfect word of pastoral comfort to us, as well as words of rebuke and correction. So he knows what the church in Smyrna is dealing with because he's right there with them. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Poverty here, I think, refers to literal financial poverty, and I'll explain why in just a minute, but then we have this parenthetical remark, but you are rich. Despite your apparent poverty, your visible economic poverty, you are rich in faith, you are rich in that you are connected to Jesus Christ, the cosmic king who has the keys to these eternal storehouses, you are wealthy, spiritually wealthy. But the church at Smyrna was facing poverty. And what many of the commentators say is that certain economic guilds or trade networks in Smyrna were intertwined with adherence to the civic religion in the Roman Empire. So basically, in order to participate in these associations, these vocational groups, these trade guilds. You had to offer sacrifice to the emperor, perform various pagan rituals, at least participate in them. And so if you refused to do that, you could be excluded from those economic networks. Let me just finish this verse and then it'll become clearer what's going on. I know your tribulation, your poverty, and the third thing, the slander... And this is the Greek word for blasphemy, strong word, the slander, the blasphemy, the accusations of those who say that they're Jews, but they're really not. They're rather part of the synagogue of Satan. So this requires a little bit of background. The Jews enjoyed a kind of exemption in the Roman Empire from a lot of these pagan rituals and sacrifices. The Roman officials recognized the religion of the Jewish people as being legitimate primarily because of its antiquity. The Jews had worshipped Yahweh for hundreds and hundreds of years, and so they were recognized as an official religion, and so they were exempted from these pagan festivals and rituals and sacrifices. Now, Christianity, before it was called that, and that is in this time, was understood to be part of Judaism. It was an offshoot of Judaism. It wasn't trying to be a new religion or anything like that. And so Christians enjoyed the same exemptions that Jews did for a long time in the Roman Empire until Jews like those in Smyrna who were in league with the Roman officials, who had no trouble accommodating their lifestyle with imperial politics, Jews began to call out Christians as something different from Judaism, to oust them, to tattletale on them, so that they lost some of these exemptions and were forced to offer sacrifice to the Roman emperor. That, it seems, is what's going on here, that these Jews who should have recognized Christians as their brothers and sisters in the faith, as co-worshippers of Yahweh, are actually calling them out so that they have to perform sacrifice or be persecuted and so that they lose all of these benefits of the trade networks that allowed them to make a living. That is why they're called a synagogue of Satan. Satan. And you can think about Jesus' words to the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Gospels, that you're really just obeying the, the commands of your father, the devil. Now They weren't actually worshiping Satan in a synagogue, but they had wedded their religion to politics and economics, and they were filling their treasuries, and so they were doing exactly what the Old Testament and the prophets says not to do. And it seems that something similar is going on here. So the Christians are identified as a separate group, which means that they're losing all of these benefits. They're experiencing tribulation, sometimes execution, imprisonment, economic poverty, and public slander. In verse 10, then, of course, the Son of Man, familiar with everything they're facing, says, do not fear. And this is formulaic in the letters. You get this statement of encouragement. Jesus says, I know, blank. And then he gives them a word of encouragement and later a word of promise. But here, do not fear what you are about to suffer, predicting the sufferings that were to come soon for them. Behold, the devil, so not really these slanderous Jews, not really the Roman officials, but the cosmic enemy whose agency is on display here, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. And I do think this is a literal prison, that you may be tested or tried, and for ten days you will have tribulation. And friends, there's no evidence of fixed prison sentences in the Roman Empire at this time. Imprisonment was never a punishment in the Roman Empire. It's quite strange, different from things today but it was a detention period. It would allow the magistrate time to think about the case and figure out a proper punishment for the criminal. And so imprisonment could last an indefinite period of time. But 10 days here seems to connect to the experience of Daniel and his friends under Babylonian captivity. 10 days, like 7, like 40, like 12. These are symbolic numbers in the book of Revelation. And so it seems to be this period of testing similar to that which Daniel, and we'll see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego experienced. And if you've ever read the book of Maccabees, I would encourage you to read about these Jewish martyrs during the Maccabean period who were tested and tried, and it's likely that a lot of those stories were swirling about for these readers. So you are about to be on paradigm with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these Maccabean martyrs. Be faithful unto death. This is the Son of Man speaking, the one who died, who actually died and was dead for three days. And he was raised from the dead, saying, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, a crown in this time was given to athletes who would win a contest. It was given to the emperor at his coronation. It was given to famous figures who performed lavish public displays of generosity, benefaction. And so the crown was a symbol of honor in the Roman Empire, and these Christians are being publicly dishonored for their refusal to bend the knee to the emperor. But Jesus, the true emperor, the king of kings, says, if you die due to faithfulness to my name, I will give you the only crown that matters." Lastly, we get this promise in verse 11, repeating words which we saw before in the letter to the Ephesians, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Connecting these letters to the parable tradition, to the prophets, which tell us that there were some in Israel who were so hardened to the words of these figures that they could not hear the messages that they would bring. But those who do have an ear to hear, who are softened to these words, let the words seep in. Hear what the Spirit says. The one who conquers, not by military might, not by a a victory in battle, but by remaining faithful to Jesus, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And this phrase, second death, recurs in Revelation. It comes up again in chapter 20, which we may get to later this year. (laughs) Revelation 20, uh, verses 14 through 15, I'll just quickly read. Uh, After this great white throne judgment uh, at which all who had been raised from the dead, both the righteous and the unrighteous, are judged according to what they had done, it says that death and Hades, capital D, capital H, Standing for evil and sin and death, these entities are thrown into the lake of fire to perish forever, to be done away with, to be gone. This is the second death. then it says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, and we'll see that means anyone who is not united to Jesus, who has not identified with him, that person will be thrown into the lake of fire to be done away with. and That is said to be the second death. And so here the promise is that the one who conquers by not backing down and remaining faithful to my name, to my movement, to my gospel, that person will not be hurt by the second death. But at this point in the reading of Revelation The Christians in Smyrna can only wonder what that means. Well, friends, there's so much more that I could say about this text, but what I'd like to do now is pivot to a few documents from 20 to 40 years later in the second century that speak about the church at Smyrna and tell us whether or not they heeded John's words here. So, we're going to turn first to the writings of Ignatius. And I don't know if you have heard of Ignatius, um, but after the New Testament period, the church became uh, structured and hierarchy started to form, and you get priests and bishops. And so, we've talked about John being a kind of proto bishop, supervising seven different churches, different pastors, but Ignatius was the bishop of Antioch in Syria, which, as you know, is one of the most significant cities in early Christian history. It's where they were first called Christians. So he was the bishop of Antioch around 110 AD, which I think was about 20 years after the writing of Revelation. And he ultimately faced persecution on account of his commitment to Jesus and eventual martyrdom. He was executed in Rome. But this legion of soldiers transported Ignatius from Antioch to Rome, a kind of journey like Paul's. And during that journey, he wrote six letters to churches and one letter to an individual. So just like the Apostle Paul. The six churches to whom he wrote letters were Ephesus, Magnesia, Trallis, Rome, Philadelphia, and Smyrna. So many of those churches being in Asia Minor, churches that were connected with some of the churches to whom John wrote letters. And the one to an individual was written to a man by the name of Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna and who was martyred, and we'll read more about him in just a moment. So these letters include theological arguments, encouragement to these communities, and reflections on martyrdom as Ignatius is about to be executed in Rome. And so I'd like to read just a few excerpts from his letter to the church at Smyrna and then his letter to Bishop Polycarp. He says, Ignatius, who is also called God-bearer, to the church which is in Smyrna of Asia, abundant greetings and a blameless spirit and the word of God. I give glory to Jesus Christ, The God who has made you so wise, for I have perceived that you have been established in immovable faith, as if you have been nailed on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, both in flesh and spirit. This is Ignatius writing, who is looking toward his execution in a matter of weeks. And about his impending martyrdom, he writes this. Nearer to the sword is nearer to God. In the midst of beasts is in the midst of God. I endure all things in the name of Jesus Christ alone, so that I may suffer with him, the perfect man himself strengthening me. Ignatius, writing to this church in Smyrna, whom he knew was facing persecution. And he is awaiting execution himself and is writing as a pastor to encourage them. There's another letter written by Ignatius, and this one is addressed to Polycarp, who is the bishop of Smyrna. So at this point, there must have been several churches gathering in Smyrna, and Polycarp is supervising them all. And he says, Ignatius, who is also called Godbearer to Polycarp, Bishop of the Church in Smyrna, abundant greetings. Stand firm like an anvil being struck with a hammer. It is the mark of a great athlete to endure punishment and to achieve victory. But especially for God's sake, we must endure all things so that he may also endure us labor together with one another, compete together, run together, suffer together, die together, rise up together as God's managers and assistants and servants. Polycarp may have been part of the community in Smyrna that received this letter from John in Revelation. He was the bishop of Smyrna in the 150s and probably the 140s, so he would have been a young man. But some think that Polycarp knew John, and so that he would have represented the next generation of this church after the one that we read of in Revelation 2. Now there is a text framed as a letter sent from this church in Asia Minor, Philomelium, Central Asia Minor sent to the church in Smyrna. And it tells the story of the death of Polycarp, their bishop. And it's one of the earliest known martyrologies. And these are stories that are told about the the deaths of martyrs meant to inspire and encourage Christians who are facing persecution themselves. This became a new genre. And so Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna in about 150 And if you don't mind, I'd like to read just an excerpt of his story. The crowd in Smyrna cried out, Away with the atheists! Find Polycarp! And let me just say that in the Roman Empire, Christians were known as atheists because they refused to worship the many gods that the Greeks and Romans worshipped. We are the atheists here. They said, away with the atheists, find Polycarp. When he first heard of it, Polycarp was not disturbed, but intended to remain in the city. However, he was persuaded by some to go out secretly, so he went out to a small country house not far from the city. The police and horsemen went out with their usual weapons, and closing in on him, he was found in a room upstairs, lying down. Immediately, he asked that food and drink be given to them whatever they might want. He asked them to give him an hour to pray without disturbance. Those who heard were greatly astounded, and many regretted that they had come against such a godly old man. When he had finished his prayer, the time came to leave. They led him to the city, and as Polycarp entered the stadium, there was a voice from heaven saying, Be strong, Polycarp. When he was brought forward, the proconsul urged him to recant, saying, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent, say, away with the atheists. So Polycarp looked at the crowd, shook his hand, and looked up to heaven, saying, away with the atheists. The proconsul persisted, saying, take the oath and I will release you. Deny Christ. But Polycarp responded, Eighty-six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How could I deny my king who saved me? The proconsul said, I have beasts, I will throw you to them unless you repent. Polycarp said, call for them. The proconsul said, I will cause you to be consumed by fire unless you repent. Polycarp said, you threaten with fire that burns and after a little while goes out, but you are ignorant of the fire of eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. Why wait any longer? Bring about what you wish. The proconsul was dumbfounded and sent his herald into the middle of the stadium to proclaim, Polycarp has confessed himself to be a Christian three times. The crowd, both Jews and Gentiles living in Smyrna, cried out with a loud voice, This is the father of the Christians, the destroyer of our gods, who teaches us not to sacrifice or offer worship. They gathered together the wood and the kindling, and such materials were placed around him, and they were about to nail him to the wood. But Polycarp said, Leave me like this, for he who allows me to endure the fire will allow me to remain without moving." So instead of nailing him, they tied him like a choice ram, ready for sacrifice. Looking to heaven, Polycarp prayed, and when he prayed and said amen, they lit the fire. A great flame then blazed, and we, those permitted to see, beheld a miracle. The fire took the form of a vaulted room, And completely surrounded the body of Polycarp. His body was in the middle, not like flesh burning, but like bread baking, or like gold or silver being refined in a furnace. Seeing that his body could not be consumed by the fire, they ordered an executioner to stab him with a dagger. And having done this, a dove came out, and a large amount of blood which extinguished the fire. And the whole crowd was astonished. And there's more to it, but the text ends, Such is the account, then, of the blessed Polycarp, who was the twelfth one martyred in Smyrna. By his endurance, he overcame, and thus received the blessed crown of immortality. And I have printed the full text of the martyrdom of Polycarp. I've put five copies in the back. It's a bit longer than this. And if they're all gone by the end and you want a copy, please... Feel free to reach out. While the letter that we read in Revelation is short, there is a rich store of evidence showing the significance of this little church in Smyrna. It is clear that the church at Smyrna heeded John's advice, Jesus' advice in Revelation two eight through eleven. They did not back down, but faced persecution boldly and thus became a shining exemplar to Christians throughout the world and throughout history. As we see in the stories of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, John, Ignatius, Polycarp, and many others, God's people, due to their heavenly citizenship, face persecution from worldly powers. And such persecution has been understood from the very beginning as fire which refines or purifies. The difficulties we face in this world by virtue of our foreign citizenship, they are the very mechanism used by God to transform our lowly bodies into the body of Christ. Now, while you and I may not face state-sanctioned persecution on account of our faith, I'm sure you experience griefs, which others don't, because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Our awareness of sin's depths, our knowledge of the world's fate, Our understanding of evil make our experience in the world truly different from that of others. Our spirits are deeply moved by human suffering, by the futility of human pursuits, by the fate of those separated from Christ. That grief, that suffering, I would say, is furnace fire Our growing faith. My advice? Don't back down from that fire, that pain, that grief. Don't try to escape from it as the world does by believing that sin isn't as bad as it is, that our fate is really secure no matter how we live, that evil is not real but mere fantasy. Friends, sin is all-consuming, evil is a cosmic reality, and our world will face judgment. But with that said, as believers, we're connected to the one who stands above it all. Only the first and the last, the one who died and rose again, Jesus, our divine and cosmic king, Jesus. Jesus. Only He can get us out of this mess, rescuing, restoring, and refining us by His right hand. This morning, be encouraged by the church of ancient Smyrna and the legacy left by their endurance. Don't shy away from the heat, the furnace. But instead, remember, just remember, that Jesus Christ is in there too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, give us clear vision, not to see everything in the world that clamors for our attention, but to see you and you alone. I think of the scene of transfiguration in which you are revealed in your divine glory. A voice from a cloud speaks. The disciples are terrified. And when they open their eyes, all they see is you. You place your hand upon them. Say, do not fear. Help us to see your terrifying glory when our souls need it but also help us to feel your warm, comforting hand when our souls need it. Perhaps this morning we need both. You know what we need. You're walking in the midst of our lampstand. Help us to shine the light of Christ so that the world can see your glory. That is what we're here to do. We love you and pray that you'd bless the rest of our service as we partake of your table together. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So it is Communion Sunday. I invite the servers to come forward at this time, Um, and like I said before,